This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? <laughs> I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So back in 2004, Jeff Smith was a state senator representing St. Louis in the Missouri Senate when he decided to run for the U.S. Congress. I did. In my first campaign, I ran for the U.S. House. I was in a 10-way primary. I lost by a little more than 1% to a guy named Russ Carnahan, whose uh, father was our governor and, and mother was our U.S. senator. And uh, you were sort of a kind of a rising star in the Democratic Party at one point. That's what they said, I guess. That's what they called me, yes. (laughs) So I'm assuming that when you were in the the Missouri State Senate, in the back of your mind, you must have thought, maybe one day, I don't know, governor, maybe maybe something like that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't get the congressional bug out of my system. So when I was in the state Senate, you know, I thought about running for Congress again and dreamed of being a U.S. senator someday. Yeah, uh, maybe running for mayor of St. Louis. You know, I didn't know, but given the term limits in Missouri, you can only serve two terms in the Senate. So I certainly, you know, uh, thought about other things, you know, like most politicians do, even though they usually lie and say they aren't. So I I guess it all kind of came crashing down uh, in 2009. What what happened? So in 2009, my best friend, who was then a member of the state House of Representatives, called me. He said he wanted to talk to me about something. And I said, what is it? He said, it's kind of sensitive. We better talk in person. And he wanted to talk to me about a postcard that had been put out in 2004, five years earlier, in the last few weeks of my U.S. House campaign. Back then, five years earlier. Okay, so long story short, Jeff had allowed an outside advocacy group to send postcards criticizing his opponent during his congressional campaign. Now, that's something that is perfectly legal today because of a 2010 Supreme Court ruling. But back in 2004, it wasn't allowed. The Federal Election Commission investigated, and Jeff denied knowing anything about it on an official affidavit, even though he did. And that under U.S. law, is a crime. And what Jeff didn't know was that the FBI was secretly investigating him, and his best friend was the bait. I never dreamed that uh, that entire time I was talking with my best friend about it, he would be wearing a wire. He was wearing a wire. He was wearing a wire on behalf of the FBI. Correct. Who were investigating you for essentially lying on 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 an official government form. Correct. So I pled guilty to obstruction of justice, and uh, it's a long story, but the federal government was interested in me cooperating on higher-level political officials uh, than me, some of whom were, you know, good friends and people I thought had uh, a lot of integrity and were good public servants. So ended up uh, not being able to to do that, and so I was sentenced to a year and a day in federal prison in uh, eastern, southeastern Kentucky. What was your first impression when you got there? So the one thing you never forget is the gates kind of clanging shut behind you. Walked into the 
intake facility. There's kind of a middle-aged woman. She says, uh, I'm in deep, you know, Appalachia. She says, uh, you know, name. I tell her my name. She says, hot and weight. I said, five, six, uh, 117. She said, education level, PhD. She kind of raised her eyebrows at that. Last profession, state senator. All right. You want to play games? You can play games all you want. We got ones here that think they're Jesus Christ. So that was my first impression, was that I was going to be even more of a fish out of water than, than I thought. I was pretty fortunate because I had less time than anybody at that prison. Everybody pretty much had 10 years or more because hmm. uh, almost everybody was in for drugs and they were, had a federal mandatory minimum sentence. Who were your, you, you say many of your fellow inmates were convicted of drug crimes. Um, tell me about the kinds of men who were incarcerated in, in, in the prison. Well, about two-thirds of them were in for crack. About a third of them were in for selling meth or oxy. I'd say all but maybe 1% of them were there for drug-related crimes. There were maybe five white-collar people in the prison uh, out of everybody there. So um, it was, you know, an education for me, certainly. Uh, racially, it was the most segregated place I'd ever lived, and I'm hmm. from St. Louis. Hmm. So that's saying something. Jeff also learned that those people inside the prison were just as business savvy as many of the people he knew on the outside, the people who were pillars of the establishment, people with years and years of formal education and training. Because in prison, the options and resources were limited. You had to do more with less, and you had to be smart about it. Here's Jeff Smith on the TED stage. So how do you survive? We learn to hustle. Uh, there's all kinds of hustles. There's legal hustles. You pay everything in stamps. Those are the currency. You charge another inmate to clean his cell. There's sort of illegal hustles, like you run a barber shop out of your cell. There's pretty illegal hustles. You run a tattoo parlor out of your own cell. And there's very illegal hustles, which you smuggle in or you get smuggled in uh, drugs, pornography, cell phones. And just as in the outer world, there's a risk-reward trade-off. So the riskier the enterprise, the more profitable it can potentially be. You want a cigarette in prison? Three to five dollars. You want an old-fashioned uh, cell phone that you flip open and it's about as big as your head? 300 bucks. You want a dirty magazine? Well, it can be as much as a thousand dollars. So as you can probably tell, one of the defining aspects of prison life is ingenuity. What did you, I mean, it sounds like very quickly you started to realize that, that there were some, there's some guys in there who were really smart, who were really savvy. There were guys who were extremely smart. You know, I, I, when I was in the Senate, I got wined and dined by some of the wealthiest CEOs in the state of Missouri, right? And I will tell you, their entrepreneurial and their business instincts, they had nothing on the guys who I did time with. Hmm. There's not a single concept that you'd learn at Wharton or Harvard Business School that you couldn't learn inside federal prison. Whether it's promotional incentives or new product launch or supply chain management, barriers to entry, customer service, territorial expansion, every one of those concepts I heard lucidly explained inside the prison. Just, of course, in the parlance of the drug trade. 
Now, Jeff knew these guys had the smarts and ability and grit to make it out in the real world someday. But he also knew they were likely to be overlooked and ignored. So today on the show, we're going to explore those very people. People who have what it takes to succeed, even against all the odds. People with incredible hidden potential. And for Jeff Smith, his first real exposure to this idea was when he ended up in prison and saw for himself that his fellow inmates could maybe one day become brilliant businessmen. Well, imagine if you're like a, a tech entrepreneur in Silicon Valley or, or somewhere else. Your main thing you have to figure out is how to make a product that you know somebody will buy. When you're a drug dealer, you not only have to figure out how to do that, but you also have to figure out how to avoid getting shot by your competitors and how to avoid getting apprehended by the police. So it requires a level of like playing chess instead of checkers, thinking on multiple levels all the time and being extremely alert to everything around you that I think would serve a lot of these guys well in the business world. The sad thing is that our prison system provides very few opportunities to help these guys translate their intuitive grasp of a lot of their sophisticated business concepts hmm. into a legitimate enterprise. There's no training, nothing to prepare them for that, no rehabilitation at all in prison, no one to help them write a business plan, no access to the internet even. And then when they come out, most states don't even have a law prohibiting employers from discriminating against people with a background. So none of us should be surprised that two out of three ex-offenders re-offend within five years. Look, I lied to the feds. I lost a year of my life from it. But when I came out, I vowed that I was going to do whatever I could to make sure that guys like the ones I was locked up with didn't have to waste any more of their life than they already had. So I guess we should mention that, um, that, that since you left prison, um, you started working with a, a group called uh, Concordance. And they, uh, they help people readjust to life uh, when they come out of prison. So how does it work? Do you, like if I'm in prison, do you contact me? And then, and then what happens? So for your last six months of prison, you would meet with one of our counselors and one of our educators. So the first thing you would do is start meeting with a counselor and learn how to feel again. You know, when you go to prison, one of the first things you do is you numb yourself. Then they start working with our educators. We call them pathway specialists in prison who begin to kind of help them develop a career blueprint for what skills they have and what skills they could use to acquire decent paying jobs when they get home. Then after their last six months of prison, they come home and they spend their first 12 months post-release uh, as part of the concordance program. And then after a few months with us every day, we refer them to employment with one of our corporate partners. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, how much of your experience in prison um, led you to, to the work you do now? All of it. I mean, you like, know, like when you were in I, prison. not just my experience in prison, but my experience coming home from prison. Right. Because I, uh, you know, I came home and I didn't know what the hell I was going to do with my life. Frankly, I was concerned that nobody would hire me. And I sat for my first interview with a very small, affordable housing nonprofit in St. Louis and went around the table and they asked me all these questions. And at the end, the vice chair of the organization said, look, you've got everything we're looking for. My only question for you is, why shouldn't we let another organization hire you now? And then we could hire you away from them in six months or so 
once the aroma has begun mm-hmm. to wear off a little. Wow. If that's the question that I get with all the advantages I had, a PhD from a top university, a home to come home to, I had family support, I'm white. In almost every way, I was advantaged compared to 99% of people that come home from prison in this country. And you know what? I had a hard time finding a decent job. I got lucky. I got that job. And then I got this professorship teaching in a graduate program of urban policy in New York City. I did that for five years. But then when Concordance reached out to me with the opportunity to come back to the hometown that I love and to help give other people the same type of second chance that I got, but almost nobody gets coming home from prison, I jumped at that opportunity. Jeff Smith, he's a former Missouri state senator who now works at Concordance Academy. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, Hidden Potential. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Honest Tea, celebrating 20 years of delicious and organic tea for everyone. All teas are real brewed and use fair trade certified leaves and sugar to create great tasting tea that's just a tad sweet. Visit honesttea.com podcast to learn more about Honest Tea and give your whole family something refreshingly honest to enjoy. Thanks also to Trader Joe's, whose podcast Inside Trader Joe's takes you on a journey through fascinating food finds, astonishing culinary inventions, fresh approaches to classic dishes, and a new way to prepare dinner. Inside Trader Joe's brings you to a Trader Joe's tasting panel, to the Napa Valley for wine, and to a Canadian soup factory for oatmeal. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's wherever you get your podcasts. More at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, the host of 1A. We're spending a week bringing you stories of cutting-edge ideas and new technologies that could change our lives for years to come. To hear our reports from the Aspen Ideas Festival, check out 1A wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, hidden potential. Ideas about finding the people who are often ignored or overlooked despite their talents. And finding them? Well, it can start with the way we look at job applications. Imagine you have two resumes. They both are equally qualified. This is Regina Hartley. She's the vice president of human resources at UPS. Person A. Great pedigree education, maybe attended an elite school, Ivy League, excellent GPA, awesome internships with major companies, all the right credentials. Then you have person B. They went to a state school, decent GPA, but maybe didn't work in the best companies for internships. Maybe they didn't have any internships at all, so they just had a lot of odd jobs. They supported themselves through school. So... Both of them might be qualified for your opening, but now you have to choose. Who would you pick? Now, Regina won't outright tell you who to pick, but she does offer some insights from her nearly 30 years in HR. Here's Regina Hartley on the TED stage. 
My colleagues and I created very official terms to describe two distinct categories of candidates. We call A the silver spoon, the one who clearly had advantages and was destined for success. And we call B the scrapper, the one who had to fight against tremendous odds to get to the same point. You just heard a human resources director refer to people as silver spoons and scrappers, which is not exactly politically correct and sounds a bit judgmental. But before my human resources certification gets revoked, <laughs> let me explain. A series of odd jobs may indicate inconsistency, lack of focus, unpredictability, or it may signal a committed struggle against obstacles. At the very least, the scrapper deserves an interview. To be clear, I don't hold anything against the silver spoon. Getting into and graduating from an elite university take a lot of hard work and sacrifice. But if your whole life has been engineered towards success, how will you handle the tough times? But on the flip side, what happens when your whole life is destined for failure and you actually succeed? Scrappers are propelled by the belief that the only person you have full control over is yourself. When things don't turn out well, scrappers ask, what can I do differently to create a better result? Scrappers have a sense of purpose that prevent them from giving up on themselves. I want to urge you to interview the scrapper. Are you a scrapper or are you a silver spoon? I'm absolutely a scrapper. <laughs> I'm the fourth of five children, and my mom raised all five of us by herself because, unfortunately, my dad had a nervous breakdown, and he was a certified paranoid schizophrenic. So it was very challenging to grow up one of five with very limited finances. I grew up in New York City, in Brooklyn, and we rented an apartment, didn't have a car, took the bus. And we didn't have a washing machine, which if you've ever had to haul laundry in shopping carts up once a week and do six people's laundry, it's not the funnest task. Hmm. We didn't have a, a telephone. Wow. And there were times that the electricity got turned off because mom decided feeding us was more important than paying the bill. Wow. I think we were the only kids in uh, East Flatbush, Brooklyn that had camping lanterns who huh. never went camping. So given your perspective having a scrappy upbringing, when you were a kid, did it affect how you wanted to live your life? Did it sort of motivate you in a way where you were like, I am going to do everything in my power to have a different life? Yes. Um, when you grow up in, in any kind of adverse condition and you have the optimism, perseverance, determination, that really drives you. It propels you forward. And I absolutely had that. I, I just knew that if I just worked hard, if I just seized opportunities that were in front of me, that I could change my circumstance. And what's really interesting is when you fast forward to your working life, when you start your first job and you look at everybody who's a leader, you think they have it all figured out and that they had all these advantages that propelled them into their roles. And over time, you find out that a lot of people had circumstances that were adverse. And so somewhere along the line, you lose that shame. And you realize that the shame becomes a badge of honor and that it doesn't define you in the negative. It actually is something that you can embrace and leverage to your advantage. 
The conventional thinking has been that trauma leads to distress, and there's been a lot of focus on the resulting dysfunction. But during studies of dysfunction, data revealed an unexpected insight that even the worst circumstances can result in growth and transformation. A remarkable and counterintuitive phenomenon has been discovered, which scientists call post-traumatic growth. In one study designed to measure the effects of adversity on children at risk, among a subset of 698 children who experienced the most severe and extreme conditions, fully one-third grew up to lead healthy, successful, and productive lives. In spite of everything and against tremendous odds, they succeeded. One-third. Take this resume. This guy's parents give him up for adoption. He never finishes college. He job hops quite a bit, goes on a sojourn to India for a year, and to top it off, he has dyslexia. Would you hire this guy? His name is Steve Jobs. I love this example of Steve Jobs because, you know, a lot of sort of HR people say, yeah, I'm not sure he's the right guy. But then you, you reveal that it's Steve Jobs, right? Right, yeah. And I see that a lot. You know, hats off to the people who are honest on their resume, and then shame on anybody that's not trolling all of the resumes to look at people differently. Like I've I've seen people whose resumes have a lot of gaps, and then when you talk to people, you find out that maybe their mom was dying of cancer, and so they moved home and they just took a break.、Hmm. And but you have to ask the question. You can't、yeah. just look at it and say, "Oh, there's a gap in employment. They、yeah. must be inconsistent. Yeah, they must be unreliable." I mean, your own life experience has has clearly influenced you. Clearly, you bring this to 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 what you do every day. Yes, I look at this as honestly my life's mission.、Hmm. To me, there's nothing better because the great equalizer is providing the opportunity. So it's not enough to have determination. It's not enough to transcend adversity. Someone along the way has to believe in you and then give you an opportunity to succeed. And I'm so grateful to the people that did that for me, and there were many. So, how do you think we, how do we begin to find those people with that hidden talent, with that, that sort of the the people who aren't raising their hands? How do we even find them? You have to go to non-traditional places. We've taken an approach to actually go into the high schools and go into diverse high schools, go into middle schools, where we just tell our stories of where we came from. And the students are so interested because they can't believe that somebody who lives just like them can actually get out of their circumstance, which is comical because we don't consider ourselves any more special than anyone else.、Yeah. But but just going in earlier and telling your story and looking for those non-traditional sources is really important. Regina Hartley, she's the vice president of human resources at UPS. You can check out her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, hidden potential: ideas about why we often pay attention to the loudest voices in the room, and how we might try and find the people who get overlooked. Yeah, I definitely thought that's the way life is. This is Malika Whitley. I just thought, you know, it's fine. I'm I'm a quiet kid. I get good grades. I don't get in a lot of, you know, disputes or anything. 
And so it just felt like, well, that's just how it is. Malika grew up in Atlanta with two loving parents and siblings. And just had a a wonderful, uh, enriching childhood. My sister is actually my best friend. I have two older sisters, so I'm the younger sister, bratty, you know, uh, always get in my way type of person. But when she was growing up, Malika's family actually struggled with homelessness. I remember having trash bags and sleeping on couches, and I remember a lot of um, dark nights. But I also remember my family really taking a lot of care to make sure that we were well-nurtured and loved during that time. Mm. During my teenage years, though, um, my mom, that's when her um, psychosis and her mania really escalated. Mm. She would be on medicine sometimes, and, and that would pull her away from all the other aspects of her personality. And then when she wasn't on medicine, it would explode. And so it was kind of like a lose-lose, like either (laughs) I don't have my mom in this way or I don't have my mom in that way. (laughs) And um, during my teenage years is when it really hit a fever pitch because everyone else had moved out of the house and I was the last standing scapegoat. And it just became unbearable and just a a little too dangerous for me to be there. And so I had to flee. Malika Whitley picks up her story from the TED stage. During my homelessness, I joined Atlanta's 3,300 homeless youth and feeling uncared for, left out and invisible each night. There wasn't and still is not any place for a homeless minor to walk off the street to access a bed. I realized that most people thought of homelessness as some kind of lazy, drug-induced squalor and inconvenience. But that didn't represent my book bag full of clothes and school books or my A-plus grade point average. I would sit on my favorite bench downtown and watch as the hours pass by until I can sneak in a few hours of sleep on couches, in cars, in buildings or in storage units. I, like thousands of other homeless youth, disappeared into the shadows of the city while the whole world kept spinning as if nothing at all had gone terribly wrong. The invisibility alone almost completely broke my spirit. Um. Like, did anybody at school, like, when, when you would just show up to school as a high school student, did, did anybody know h- how you were living? You know, that's so funny because so many... So my, my school, Washington High School, is located in a poor neighborhood. And so with my homelessness, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. And it wasn't something that we really talked about because it was something that we assumed that people like us just experienced. And so that aspect really deterred me from telling my story for a very long time because I thought there's nothing really special about this story. Everybody goes through this. I mean, you were a kid. You were a kid living that way. Like nobody, certainly no no children should have to live that way, and yet you just thought this was just a sort of normal. This is like a way of life. Absolutely. I mean, I remember when I got to college and I realized that I had never known someone 
who was not elderly to die outside of murder, right? Wow. And in high school, it was super normal to see people with airbrushed T-shirts with RIP on it and for your friends to die and you to just move on, you know? Um, And so homelessness felt indulgent for you to carry the trauma and let yourself feel that trauma. In spite of that, though, you're going to feel it. You know, it was very lonely. It was very depressing. I remember I would ask my sister, who was really close to my mom, if my mom had asked about me, if she was wondering if I was okay, and she would say no. Hmm. And um, how much of a dagger that was. So how did you cope? What, What did you find that helped you deal with it? Well, I coped in, I think, uh, in a conventional way. I really dove into the arts. And so it started off with poetry. I would just write in my journal. And then um, it expanded into singing. And I would just find different places where I could sing. And I ended up landing on this church. And they had really good acoustics in the basement. And so I would just go really early and, and sing in that church. And um, I think it allowed me to steal a few hours each day where I just felt normal. Five years later, I started my organization, Chop Art, which is a multidisciplinary arts organization for homeless minors. Chop Art uses the arts as a tool for trauma recovery by taking what we know about building community, and restoring dignity and applying that to the creative process. Chop Art is headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, with additional programs in Hyderabad, India, and Accra, Ghana. And since I started in 2010, we've served over 40,000 teens worldwide. Our teens take refuge in the transformative elements of the arts, and they depend on the safe space Chop Art provides for them to do that. An often invisible population uses the arts to step into their light. But that journey out of invisibility is not an easy one. I mean, it's almost like no one recognized your potential. You had to kind of just make it on your own. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's almost like you decided that you were not going to let that happen to other kids, that you were going to devote your life to recognizing potential in kids who otherwise would be ignored. Absolutely. Absolutely. So many of our teens have come into the program and for the first time in their lives, they're able to express their trauma. And seeing the power of telling a teenager who is feeling absolutely alone that you see them is life-changing. Yeah. I mean, why do you think it is that we that we understand that so many of these kids that you work with have incredible potential, right? They could be they could change the world. Like well, they may be, you know, the next Einstein. We would just and mm. in normal circumstances they would be ignored. We would never know mm-hmm. about them. They wouldn't be discovered. Absolutely. I think that they go unseen one because of what we understand about homelessness, right? So when we think about a homeless person, we don't think about the teenager who is living out of their locker. Yeah. And then another is just expecting 
um, teens with potential, kids with potential, to just like either be like this prodigy that we see in the movies where it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they solved their math problem in two <laughs> seconds flat. <Right. laughs> or being just completely, you know, outgoing and just like thrusting it in your face. A lot of times that potential lives quietly mm. and it needs someone to nurture it and to value and validate it uh, so that they can also see that potential. We can give them the validation that they need and we can build them up in a way where they can be seen and then they can go into the world and just give it their all. Malika Whitley, she's the founder of Chop Art. It's an arts organization for homeless, middle, and high schoolers. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, Hidden Potential. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Smartwater. Smartwater aims to go beyond what others are doing. Taking inspiration from the clouds themselves, Smartwater one-ups them by adding electrolytes for a clean, crisp taste. Smartwater, vapor distilled for purity, electrolytes for taste. Whether it's athlete protests, the Muslim travel ban, gun violence, school reform, or just the music that's giving you life right now, Race is the subtext to so much of the American story. And on Code Switch, we make that subtext text. You can listen to us on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, hidden potential. Ideas on recognizing the potential in people, even when they can't picture it in themselves. By age 16, I I would tell myself, essentially, I'm either going to end up dead or in prison. There's really no other option. This is Victor Rios. Today, he's a professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara. There was moments where I would stand on street corners and there were guys that would drive by and shoot at us. And instead of running, I would stand there waiting for for the bullets to hit me because I didn't care. I didn't care about my life. Can you tell me about about where you grew up and, and how you grew up? Yes, well, I grew up in Oakland, California, and uh, I didn't have a father. Uh, he abandoned us before I was born, and uh, my mother uh, was scraping by to make ends meet. And I remember being a little kid, and we're at a park in Oakland, California, and it's a beautiful day. The sun is out. And uh, we're having a great time, family time. And then it starts to get dark and it starts to get cold. And I asked my mom, when are we going home? And she says to me, son, uh, we're not going home. This is where we're sleeping tonight. And so being poor as a child, being homeless at times, not having a father, experiencing insurmountable amounts of violence, seeing, for example, my best friend shot and killed. Wow. So by the time I turned into a teenager, I was becoming a juvenile delinquent, dropping out of high school, 
and uh, I didn't know who to turn to. But I had a teacher that cared for me dearly. And uh, she would always tell me, Victor, when you're ready to change, I'll be here for you. I wasn't ready. Here's Victor Rios on the TED stage. But she understood one basic principle about young people like me. We're like oysters. We're only gonna open up when we're ready. And if you're not there when we're ready, we're gonna clam back up. Miss Russ was there for me. She respected my community, my people, my family. I told her a story about my uncle Ruben. He would take me to work with him because I was broke and he knew I needed some money. He collected glass bottles for a living. Four in the morning on a school day, we'd throw the glass bottles in the back of his van and the bottles would break. And my hands and arms would start to bleed and my tennis shoes and, and, and pants would get all bloody. And I was terrified and in pain and I would stop working. And my uncle, he would look at me in the eyes and he would say to me, mijo, estamos buscando vida. We're searching for a better life. We're trying to make something out of nothing. Mrs. Russ listened to my story, welcomed it into the classroom and said, Victor, this is your power. This is your potential. Your family, your culture, your community have taught you a hard work ethic and you will use it to empower yourself in the academic world so you can come back and empower your community. With Mrs. Russ's help, I ended up returning to school. I even finished my credits on time and graduated with my class. But Ms. Russ said to me right before graduation, Victor, I'm so proud of you. I knew you could do it. Now it's time to go to college. So clearly, she recognized your potential. And she, she saw that you had something. And then your life started to, to turn around. And then you decided that, that in your career, you wanted to do the same thing for people who were like you. Yes. <laughs> so I study young people that have gotten in trouble with the law. I study young people that get in trouble at school. And I try to find practical solutions for how do we help these young people out. And as I do my research, I separately conduct mentoring programs. And now a hundred of my undergraduate students participate in those uh, mentoring programs. So basically, when we see um, young kids, particularly boys, um, who are come from you know troubled backgrounds, um, they're described as at-risk kids. And and you have a different way of you're sort of pushing a different way of, of seeing this. So can you can you sort of talk a little bit about your vision um, for how we need to rethink um, of, of kids who come from troubled backgrounds? Yeah, so in many places in our society when we uh, deal with kids who are in trouble, we still use language that is deficit-based. So, mm -hmm. for example, you know, at-risk kids, uh, at-risk youth is one example. But uh, labels are important, and so if you label me a risk, 
your solutions for me are going to be risk-based. And I've been with kids in juvenile facilities. I've been with kids in detention rooms. I've, I've been with kids on the streets. And I've told them, hey, you're not at risk. You're at promise. And when I tell them that, they, you know, they light up. They feel like, wow, really? You think that about me? And I say, yeah, I, I, I believe that about you. Just a, a, a small tweak like that, like just changing at risk to at promise and re kind of recalibrating the way we talk about certain kids can actually change not only how we think of them, but the way they think of themselves. Yes, and it's important to help to change the way young people think of themselves because many times, you know, they're in a vulnerable stage in their development, their adolescence, they're already in turmoil. And then you add poverty, you add being labeled as a troublemaker to to the equation. And so they're very much on the edge. And you bring them back in by, by making them feel like, hey, you have potential, you have promise, you're a leader, let's bring it out. Where's your hidden genius? How can we bring that out in school and in society? What do teachers like Ms. Russ do to succeed with young people like the ones I study? I propose three strategies. The first, let's get rid of our deficit perspective in education. These people come from a culture of violence, a culture of poverty. These people are at risk. These people are truant. These people are empty containers for us to fill with knowledge. Number two, let's value the stories that young people bring to the schoolhouse. They're stories of overcoming unsurmountable odds are so powerful and I know you know some of these stories and of course the third strategy being the most important resources we have to provide adequate resources to young people grit alone isn't going to cut it you can sit there and tell me all you want hey man pick yourself up by the bootstraps but if I was born without any straps on my boots, how am I supposed to pick myself up? Do you think that, I mean, do, do you think that you were exceptional, that, that, that you were like, you had this hidden talent that, that was discovered or, or do you think that you just got lucky, that, that there were lots of kids like you and, and you just got lucky? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't I don't consider myself a genius in any kind of way. I just what I can consider myself is someone that was given opportunity and that maybe was resourceful in taking advantage of that opportunity. Uh, I turned 40 recently and and instead of thinking of it as midlife, I think of it as double life because I was I wasn't supposed to live to age 20 and then I got an extra 20 years. And so I'm in a place where because of my teacher that came into my life and taught me that I did have that intelligence, that I did have that potential, and helped me see it before I could ever imagine it, I'm here today. That's the common denominator in my life story, and that's the common denominator in the 10 years of research I've conducted with young people, that when you have a good figure in your life that is there to guide you, uh, you have that potential to make it far. Victor Rios, 
He's a professor of sociology at UC Santa Barbara. You can watch his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas on hidden potential. So if Victor Rios is right, then the key to unlocking that hidden potential is through mentorship. Yeah, you need mentors. You need that little voice in your head saying you're better than this and you can do more than this. And if you never hear that, then you don't think that you can. This is Pearl Ardondo. She's a middle school principal. And Pearl grew up in East L.A. in the 1980s in a mostly Latino neighborhood. My mom was born in Mexico. My dad was born in the U.S., but they were both gang members at the beginning. Hmm. Um, Luckily, my mom decided to step away from that life once she had children and realized it wasn't really going to be conducive to anything productive. But my dad was kind of in and out. He was one of the lead gang members there, and so he never actually lived with us. He was, he was in jail more than he was out. And when he would come out, I was afraid of him. Like, when I would see him, my heart would race and I would panic. And I would be like, oh, my God, is he going to, like, kill us? Is he going to do something to us? The dream was really to get out of that neighborhood. I think for a while I didn't know what I was going to do or where I was going to go, but I knew I didn't want to live like that. And so my mom would always tell us, like, you have to go to college so that you don't have to live like this. Like, that's, that's the ticket, is going to school. Was there anyone else uh, besides your mom who, who really believed in you, who saw your potential despite, uh, you know, the circumstances around you? Yeah, it was my fifth grade teacher. Hmm. I remember she came over to my house one day, and my sister and I are playing dress up, and she knocks on the door. And it's like, oh, my God, it's my teacher. Why are you here? And she's like, I need to talk to your mom about school options. And she told my mom, like, you know, if she goes to the school that's right here, the local junior high, she's just going to get swallowed up, all the gang stuff. And she's like, she needs to go to a better school. And my mom was like, well, she's only in fifth grade. And she was like, yeah, it's okay. She's going to be fine. She needs to go. And so, yeah. Next year, sixth grade, I was gone. Pearl Arredondo picks up her story from the TED stage. So the next two years, I took a school bus to the fancy side of town. And eventually, I ended up at a school where there was a mixture. There were some people who were really gang-affiliated, and then there was those of us really trying to make it to high school. Well, trying to stay out of trouble was a little unavoidable. You had to survive. So I really needed a support network, a group of people who were going to help me make sure that I wasn't going to be a victim of my own circumstance, that they were going to push me beyond what I even thought I could do. I needed teachers in the classroom every day who were going to say, you can move beyond that. But then I was accepted to Pepperdine University, and I came back to the same school that I attended to be a special ed assistant, And then I told them, I want to be a teacher. I really wanted to try to save more kids who were just like me. And so every year, I share my background with my kids because they need to know that everyone has a story, everyone has a struggle, and everyone needs help along the way. Creating a safe haven for our kids 
and getting to know exactly what they're going through, getting to know their families. I wanted that. And they need teachers to fight for them and empower them to move beyond their circumstances. Because it's time that kids like me stop being the exception and we become the norm. Why do you think that, not just in schools, but in business, in all kinds of environments, we tend to ignore kids who don't raise their hands or, 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 or you know, people who are kind of, you know, not the first to speak up or maybe seem to be a little bit different? Why do you think, why do you think they're ignored? Sometimes I don't think it's done on purpose. I think it's just, you know, you, you get caught up with, those who make it easy for you. And you naturally just kind of gravitate to those who are more open or who are talkative and, you know, the extroverts. And I think because I'm naturally an introvert, I, I do look for the kid who's not talking, you know, because I'm that kid. I mean, I mean, you must look out at your kids at your school and, and see a version of yourself in so many of them. Oh, absolutely. You know, I have to sit with some of some of my toughest girls, you know, that have the most attitude and a lot of them are dealing with the same things I did. You know, dad's not there. Dad's dad's in jail. Dad's gone. I think they they have a lot of anger too. And I remember feeling like that as a kid. And so, you know, I try to tell them about channeling it into different things and, you know, getting involved in activities after school and how can we take up more more of their time in a productive way. You know, is it dance class? Is it sports? Is it art? Is it computers? Is it photography? Something that's fun, that's not just, you know, full academics, but they're still learning something. Hmm. And so sometimes channeling that energy helps them out. Was it that fifth grade teacher who unlocked your hidden potential? Absolutely. And she's stuck by me. I mean, even now, you know, she's retired and I still talk to her. And, and maybe that's what it takes. I think it takes, you know, building that relationship. It's all on talking to people and getting to know them. Because once you do, it becomes, it's now personal. You now have a stake in their lives. And unless you get to know them, then they are just, you know, someone who's going to pass through. And it's those little two minutes of a conversation that would make all the difference. Pearl Arredondo. She actually co-founded a new middle school in 2010. It's called the San Fernando Institute for Applied Media. You can see Pearl's full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our episode, Hidden Potential, this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Deba Murtasham, with help from Daniel Shukin and Lawrence Wu. Our intern is Megan Shellong. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. NPR.